This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Recently, the Supreme Court of the United States issued a very significant decision known as Obergefell. In that 5-4 to four ruling, writing for the majority, Justice Kennedy argued that same-sex marriage is protected under the 14th Amendment, which was ratified after the American Civil War to guarantee the rights of those whose freedom had been won in that Civil War. There were several strongly worded dissenting opinions, however, in Obergefell, issued by four of the justices. So, however settled the law may be for now, the debate continues even on the Supreme Court. Obergefell is likely to have ramifications for the way Christians live in a largely non-Christian society, how they conduct business, how schools operate, and even what churches are free to do. Here to help us understand how the court reached its decision and how we ought to think about it is Dr. David Vendrunen, the Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics at Westminster Seminary, California. He is the author of, co-editor of, and contributor to several books, including Living in God's Two Kingdoms. This, with other faculty titles, is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. This is part two of our two-part discussion with Dr. Vendrunen about same-sex marriage. It's become fairly widely accepted in a number of places that religious liberty really entails fundamentally a right to think certain things and in some circumstances to say certain things, but it's not universally understood that it entails a right to do certain things, to act on those convictions, which is a remarkable thing if you think about our history. I mean, even if you were a slave in a Roman prison, you could think what you wanted. That was not in question you know, saying what you want. Well, that's a relatively new thing in world history without being arrested or thrown in jail or what have you. But being able to act on those convictions was one of the reasons why people actually packed up, left England and Europe and moved to this country. And yet that concept seems to be either weakening or in some cases, one wonders if it's just not altogether forgotten. These two are complicated issues. You're certainly right in what you're saying. And I think a larger issue that we're going to be wrestling with as a society and as a judicial system is, is there something unique about religion over against having a philosophy or having a worldview? And because the Constitution protects the free exercise of religion, it's not protecting, in a sense, worldviews or philosophies. It really is recognizing that there's something special about religion. And when you understand the founding of the U.S., it's, you know, in many ways a collection of religious minorities from various countries in Europe. That's how it began. The protection of religion and the free exercise of religion was extremely important. But I think in a lot of American society today, and especially in elite circles, and judges tend to be in elite circles, there's not really an appreciation for the idea that religion may be something special, maybe something unique that requires some sort of recognition in law. And I think that's something I haven't seen as much written on this as on some other things, but I think that's going to be an important issue that's going to be fought about in the future. And increasingly, those decisions are going to be made by people, it seems, who have less and less personal experience with religious institutions. A hundred years ago, the mainline Christian denominations probably 
probably counted among them members of social, you know, elite institutions, the Senate, the court, and even the presidency of the United States occasionally. But when one looks at polls as to, you know, what the religious identity is of people in the Senate or people on the court or in other leading sort of shaping institutions, increasingly they have less and less experience. And so they're going to be ruling from their point of view about theory rather than practice, which is likely going to make the court an interesting laboratory. Now, the court has reversed itself in the past. It doesn't reverse itself openly very often. It's sort of like the papacy. It changes without saying that it's changing sometimes. How likely is it to reverse itself as it did, for example, in the case of Dred Scott in the 19th century? For example, it's been since 73 that Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton were decided, and the court doesn't seem to be close to overturning those decisions. If the court reverses itself, how long does that usually take? Well, I'm not sure there is any usual. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think what you said is right. The court doesn't typically reverse itself, at least in an explicit way. What it will tend to do is to make distinctions as future cases come, and the law may evolve gradually in certain directions, but it's very unusual just to find a previous case just thrown out completely. And I mean, I think if you're asking, what are the odds of it happening? How long might it take? I think the odds are extremely low. And if the odds are extremely low, then I guess we're looking at a very long time frame. <laughs> it's obviously, I guess it's possible that you could have cases that come up that would challenge this in some way or another, but I don't think anyone should be staying awake at night waiting for this to happen. It's not something that I think is on the horizon. Don't fast until it's overturned because you'll starve to I death. think that's probably wise. All right. Is there anything that any of the other branches of the federal government can do to ameliorate the effect of Obergefell? Yes. And there are certainly things in the works. I'm not an expert in knowing all that's going on, but there is this uh, First Amendment Defense Act that has been um, being considered in Congress, which is going to try to, I guess, as it says, try to take some measures that will try to highlight and protect certain First Amendment liberties. And so, I mean, that's something that is out there. There are certainly in state legislatures, I mean, there have been things going on already. How long ago was it now when the whole Indiana thing broke out? I mean, that was really... Just a few months ago. Yeah, it was really an attempt to take some proactive measures to be dealing with this. And we saw... And to enact on a state level what was already enacted into federal law in 1993. Right. In Utah, there was a kind of a compromise that was hammered out, granting some protections against same-sex discrimination balanced by certain protections of religious freedom. Now, that was a compromise. And when you have compromises, you often have it where people on both sides feel like they're giving away the store. But I imagine you'll find other states trying to work out something like that. So there are things out there. And I think some of these may be somewhat effective. But of course, there's always that sense that these things can be challenged in court. I mean, just like we just saw. I mean, that's why we're having this conversation right now. And so it's not as if the things that state legislatures do or that Congress might do or that other branches of government might do might not get overturned the way we just saw these state laws on marriage get overturned. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So Christian has a business, let's say, in the wedding case business, which seems to be where the flashpoint is. person is a Christian and is willing to do business with people of various sexual identities and orientations, but draws the line at participating in a wedding because this business person sees this as an endorsement of something that they think is contrary to nature and contrary to the moral law of God. What should that person do? It seems like 
one runs a fairly serious risk of litigation or being called to appear before some sort of human rights commission. How should we think about that? Well, I'm not equipped to be giving any kind of legal advice. And so I'm in many ways hesitant to give an answer to that. I think you're right. A person in that situation would say they come to you as a pastor and they say, Pastor, you know, Vendruna, what do I do? Do I uh, sell my business? You know, what does the moral law require of me in this case? And I imagine, in fact, I know for a fact that people are coming to different conclusions. I've seen arguments that say, well, you ought to cater this wedding and you have an obligation as a matter of charity to cater this wedding. And others are saying, well, you ought to exercise your conscience and suffer the consequences for doing that. Like, for example, Dr. King, he violated the law knowingly believing that the Jim Crow laws were unjust, and he went to jail in order to make a point to demonstrate the injustice of the law. So not from a legal point of view, but from a moral pastoral point of view, what kind of advice might you give a caterer who's struggling with this? Well, I would say for one thing that I would not see myself as a pastor in a position to dictate exactly what this person should do. And I do think that that's important for pastors or other spiritual counselors to keep in mind. We need to be very careful about giving, thus says the Lord, counsel to to people for matters that get into some pretty complicated areas of economic and political and legal life. So that's an important point. So you see it as the pastor's job more to, in this case, not in every case, but in this kind of a case, to help the parishioner think through the issues. Is that fair? Yes. And so, you know, just to be clear, if a person came to me and said, I'm thinking about getting married to my homosexual partner, I just want the person to be able to think through to make a nice decision. No, there I would say, I can give you firm counsel as a minister of the Word of God is that you should not do that. So that would be flatly contrary to the Word of God. Right. But whether to cater a same-sex wedding or not to cater, that's a question on which Christians may disagree. Right. And again, that's not saying that this is morally irrelevant or morally neutral. I would say just the opposite. This is an extremely morally rich and deep decision, but it's not one that I think a pastor can say, thus says the Lord clearly from the Word of God, this is how all such cases have to be decided. You can't say that anyone who disagrees with my view or your decision is necessarily in violation of the moral law of God. And and therefore subject to church discipline. I'm taking it that we're not going to take the time to try to relate all the things that I would try to talk about and help this person understand. But I want to say this, is that I think we are going to, I think as Christians and as the church, we're going to have to think about some broader issues that relate to the more specific question that you asked. Because it's not as if this is an isolated issue. There are broader moral questions about to what degree can we participate in social structures and social practices that may be in part in violation of God's law and yet do so in good conscience. To what extent do we fight for what we think are our legal rights And to what extent do we not fight, but say, this is part of my suffering as a Christian that I'm going to forego trying to pursue litigation? So these are really important questions that I think we as American Christians, those of us who are American Christians, haven't had to face these questions the way a lot of so many other Christians have in so many other places in 
so many other eras of history, we don't realize just how good we've had it as Reformed Christians, that we've not only been able to establish our own churches and worship in the way that we believe God requires of us, but we've also been able to live in a society that essentially, at least in its big picture, doesn't present any great moral conflicts, and so that we can participate in the broader life of commerce and art and science and feel like we're a part of it. And now we're facing increasingly the sense that, wow, I don't really fit in the way that maybe I or maybe our Christian parents or grandparents did. And we're becoming strangers and aliens. We're, we haven't moved, but yeah, there's a sense of which we always were, of course, because scripture tells us that we are strangers. We're pilgrims. We're sojourners. But I think we're realizing now increasingly what that means in a way that perhaps we didn't in the United States before. And I think part of the pastoral counsel we need to give to people who are wrestling with these concrete issues but also this is part of our broader training of the people in our churches, is that we need to be thinking, okay, what does it mean to be a pilgrim, to be a sojourner? And that's not going to be an easy question to answer, but I think it's one we're going to have to wrestle with in ways that we haven't wrestled with that in the past. And I think we have to trust that the Lord knows that this is actually good for us and that this is going to serve for our sanctification. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced, historically, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Well, this is a hard providence, really, that has, in some ways, that has come on us, that we have to accept, right. not to say that we have to be passive. Because, as you mentioned, you know, as the listener is a citizen of the United States, he still has civil options and the opportunity to participate in the civil political process to make arguments, to try to persuade, try to influence, and so forth in a, what we might think of as a more positive direction. So you're not necessarily counseling withdrawal. No, in fact, just the opposite in some ways. You know, part of being a sojourner and exile is that you actually are living in a particular place and that you are participating in it, even though it's not your permanent home. Okay, in First Peter 2, Peter calls us sojourners and exile. Okay, well, he's saying that against an Old Testament background. Who were the Old Testament sojourners? Well, it was Abraham and his family. Was Abraham living a monastic life? Well, no, we know that he's participating in the economic and legal and military life of the places where he's living. Who were the Old Testament exiles? Well, it's the Babylonian captivity. It's referring to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, they weren't living a monastic life. So, part of our wrestling with being 
being sojourners and exiles is to say, okay, we need to recognize two things, essentially. One is we need to come to a better understanding and recognition that our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3.20 says that explicitly. Hebrews 13, here we do not have a lasting city. We're waiting for the city to come. And on the other hand, how do we actually live responsible lives in the place where we are? How do we live lives that actually bring benefit and blessing to the places where we are? So how do we participate in the political and legal and economic life of the place where we find ourselves. And that's really important. That's part of being a sojourner and an exile. And it means, in part, paying attention. Americans have a long history of not paying attention, really going back to the founding of this country. Most of the people who were here didn't participate in the American Revolution. It was a relatively small percentage, and Americans for a long time have simply said, well, those people over there can take care of that, and I'm going to mind my own business. And maybe it's time for Americans who are worried about where things are going to spend a little bit more time paying attention, even though it can be pretty discouraging to watch and read the news on a regular basis. Right. I think we do have to pay attention. It's good that we do that. And again, I would say we don't all have to have the same degree of interest and involvement in political affairs. I think that there's another area in which different Christians may make different decisions about where they spend their time and where they devote their resources. And I think there's, again, it's important that we maintain a certain balance and that we don't want to be politically ignorant. At the same time, we don't want to be politically obsessed either. And I think there's a real case to be made that, you know, perhaps even more what's needed for Christians and for the church at this time is not a heightened political awareness or a heightened political activism, but a real commitment for us to conduct ourselves and our lives in ways that are appropriate to God's Word in areas like sexuality and marriage. It's true. We have an opportunity now to provide a very clear, if we will, a very clear contrast. That's right. You know, one of the things that I think many of us Christians know this, although we don't really want to admit it, is that part of the reason why a lot of other people don't take Christians very seriously when they talk about sex and marriage is because they know the hypocrisy and the inconsistency. They know the stories about prominent Christian leaders, either in the church or in public life, who are caught in sexual scandals. They know about the adultery and the divorce that takes place in Christian circles. They know that many professing Christian males use pornography, and they have a point when they say, why should we take you seriously when you lecture us about homosexuality? We really are very much in the circumstances of the second century Christians, increasingly surrounded by people who don't know what we believe or are misinformed or totally ignorant, and yet who see in us, you know, hypocrisy. And if you read the literature of the second century, the Christian leaders were consistently exhorting their people to God godliness and holiness precisely for the reasons that you're saying. In fact, just in the last few years, my own reading of them has sort of been not transformed, but I've come to have more sympathy for why these writers and leaders were exhorting their people to holiness and godliness because they understood intuitively the consequences of hypocrisy. Yeah. I mean, certainly we're not striving for holiness in sexual matters or other things in order to be self-righteous or something. I mean, and one thing is just to be faithful 
to the Lord. Again, this is not just an issue about homosexuality per se. I mean, there are broader issues about sexual chastity, about the purity and importance of marriage and of family. And I think we as Christians, we have a lot of challenge in order to raise our children in this kind of environment and not just to tell them, well, this is what the Bible says. That's part of it, obviously, a big part of it, but it's also showing them, setting wholesome examples uh, for them, helping them to understand that this is actually good for them and that God hasn't said, thou shalt not commit adultery and given other kinds of commands for sexual purity just in order to make life hard for us. He's done it in order to actually promote what's good for us as human beings. And I think we have a lot of challenges. That's always hard. And now it's almost as if there's an additional pressure on us. But God is good and he's gracious and He's at work in us by His Spirit, using the means of grace, the preaching of the gospel, and the holy sacraments. As we begin to draw this discussion to a conclusion, there are a couple of other questions we should think about. One, congregations and denominations are almost certainly going to have to think about some issues, and I imagine there will be some declarations and things forthcoming in the next couple of years about this, and there have been already in the past. How do you think congregations and churches should respond? For example, should we rethink our policy about uh, you know how and where and with we hold weddings, or is it a good idea for churches to issue uh, statements about how they define marriage? There are lots of different things that people are going to be thinking about, I guess. Yes, I think there are certainly going to be things, and certainly how they handle their property when you're talking about the use of buildings. That's yeah, they're going to have to think about that, and I can't offer any legal advice, but there are some good, competent organizations out there that are offering resources to help churches with that. Uh, I think in terms of declaration statements about what churches believe, I think that's going to depend in part whether you already have confessional documents that set that out. You know, as a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the Westminster Standards make pretty clear what our view of marriage is. And so, I don't think it's going to be an issue for us about being clear about our convictions, but certainly for non-confessional churches, or for churches that may be confessional, but maybe their confessions don't really talk much about marriage per se, then I think there's probably something they're going to have to be thinking about. I think that, you know, one thing that we're beginning to see some churches do, which I think will continue and is good, I think, is to do what we're doing in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Our Committee on Christian Education has formed a special committee on marriage and sexuality in order to think about how we can provide resources and other educational material for the church in order to try to wrestle with these issues. I'm actually serving on that committee, and so I'm thinking firsthand about how we might do that. And I think that's good for us to be doing that, to try to help each other to work through some of these issues. And to think about this broadly, and perhaps less importantly, how we deal with our property, and more importantly, how do we teach our children? How do we evangelize in this light? How do we express our views in ways that are clear and winsome. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Yeah, I wanted to go exactly there, so thank you. So you're standing in the backyard and uh, you're barbecuing and your neighbor's barbecuing and sort of waiting for the thing to heat up or whatever, and so you get to talking about this and you know, let's say your neighbor's not a Christian or maybe a member of a mainline denomination that thinks same-sex marriage is great and you're opposed to same-sex marriage. How do we navigate that? What are ways that we can talk about this with our neighbors without increasing the divide between them? I mean, people are going to be facing this question, are already facing this question. If you're in the um, break room at work and you say to a group of coworkers, look, clearly, biologically, human beings are 
male and female, and clearly only males and females can procreate, and marriage is really only naturally between males and females, there's a high likelihood you're going to find yourself in the human resources department having a conversation about what you can and can't say in the break room. Right. It's very difficult to answer that question in the abstract because, of course, how you talk to people is going to depend on a lot of different things, the kind of relationship you have with them, the past history you have with them, what kind of convictions they already hold. If the question is, how do we talk to other Christians, perhaps Christians who are not really sure what the big deal is or who may be open to rethinking traditional issues on sex and marriage, I think there are certain ways that we're going to talk to them. And I think we need certainly to speak in some very explicit ways about the way that Scripture speaks about sexuality, the way it speaks about human nature. I think perhaps your question is more towards what about unbelievers in the neighborhood or at work? And boy, this is difficult. I'm going to try to say a few things that are on my mind here, and I'm going to try to do it concisely. There have been a number of people who have tried to make, we might say, kind of natural revelation arguments, kind of creation order kind of arguments about the gay marriage issue. And I think it's fair to say that they've had very little effect, very little impact, which is interesting because I think there are a lot of other issues in which there are again, we might call natural revelation or natural law kinds of arguments that actually carry some weight and some plausibility in broader social debates. I think part of the problem that we're facing now as we try to speak to the general culture, as we're basically trying to live in some peaceful and orderly ways under law with people who hold different convictions, is that over the last decades, there has really taken over the broader culture an idea that unless you're actually hurting somebody— Unless the other person doesn't consent, you really ought to be able to conduct yourself sexually the way you want to, the way it makes you feel good, the way it satisfies your needs. Marriage has been redefined, according to Robert George, as consent plus affection. Yeah, and so when you're dealing with people who have that kind of basic assumption, there is no real objective thing called marriage that's out there. And sex is something that, you know, unless you're coercing somebody, you really ought to be able to do what you want to do. It's very hard to make arguments that are going to make much impression. And one of the ways I've been thinking about this recently is ultimately there are issues of wisdom and foolishness here. And in some ways, I think you could say that when we're talking about appeals to natural law, natural revelation, there's sort of appeals to wisdom. Wisdom is grounded in the created order, and that's really what we're talking about. If you read the opening of Proverbs, the first nine chapters, you might well think that sexual promiscuity, sexual lack of chastity is about as foolish as it gets. And in some ways, I think you can find some real elements of wisdom in the broader society when it comes to certain issues among many unbelievers when it comes to certain ideas of of how we relate to each other, of industriousness. You can find these elements of a common wisdom, but there seems to be this real lack and this real destruction of a sense of a real wisdom when it comes to sexual matters. You know, one of the things that becomes very clear in the book of Proverbs, again, is that it's very difficult to talk to those who are fools. It's hard to reason with fools. So the first thing you have to decide before you have this conversation is whether you're casting pearls before swine, whether the person with whom you're speaking is prepared to hear any sort of appeal to natural revelation, natural law. And if they're not, it might not be wise to proceed down that line. Well, I think that's part of it. At the same time, I think we need to make our case as we have opportunity, even if other people aren't going to pay attention. What I would say is this, is that I wouldn't give 
a lot of encouragement to Christians to think, if you just think of a better argument, you're going to convince people on sexual chastity or the nature of marriage. It seems to me that part of learning wisdom is recognizing that foolish conduct has terrible consequences. There is evidence out there about what the sexual revolution of the last 40, 50 years has done, about what it's done to children, children who are the victims of their parents' immorality. Just drive down the 405 and look at the billboards. There are large billboards as you approach West Hollywood warning about sexually transmitted diseases. Yes, right. And, you know, and you had these sociological studies, you know, defining, you know, what is no real surprise to us that children who are raised with a mother and a father in the home do better on just about every measure of success in life than people who don't. I guess I would put it this way. I think we're probably going to have to continue to see some of the deleterious consequences of the sexual revolution. We're going to probably have to see them heightened before many people are going to come to a realization that we've gone down a foolish course. And I don't think that's going to happen simply by finding some smart people in our midst who are going to make really, really sharp arguments. I think we're probably going to have to see some of the social destructiveness before there's going to be some serious rethinking of these things. But of course, in the meantime, we continue to preach the law and the gospel, and we trust that no matter what is going on in the broader culture, that we're going to see by God's grace, people turning to the Lord and submitting themselves to his law. And we're going to see people in the midst of a lot of bad things around us. We're going to see people who are blessed as they seek to order their lives according to God's will. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.